If you like small town mystery, crazy news, and wild history, then the Florida Men on Florida Man podcast is for you. Each week, Josh Mills and Wayne McCarty bring you the absolute best Florida has to offer. So if you're looking for a show that's safe for the family, but funny enough to help you escape everyday life, then listen to the Florida Men on Florida Man podcast. That's Florida Men, plural, on Florida Man podcast. You do have to hold space for someone else's trauma and you do have to protect yourself from that without ending up being not empathetic you have to, to put it. Your, so you have to put your gloves on. You have to put your gloves on, yeah. Welcome to Psychocinematic, a podcast where we analyse depictions of mental illness and disability in popular films and TV. I'm your host, Stephanie Fornasia. If you love our podcast and want to give us some support, make sure you're following Psychocinematic Podcast on Instagram, TikTok and Twitter. And check out our website, psychocinematicpodcast.com. For access to special bonus content, episodes, early access, stickers and contribute to our regular fundraisers, join our Patreon. Starting from $3.50 a month, you can be the coolest Psychocinematic listener there is. Please note that this episode contains discussions of suicide and self-harm. If this episode brings up anything for you, Lifeline is available on 131114 or the Suicide Callback Service on 1300-659-467. But feel free to skip this one if you prefer. So I'd like to start the podcast recording today by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land in which I'm on today, which is the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. And just a little Australia-based note, even though our the majority of our nation voted no for some recognition in the Constitution for First Nation peoples, myself and other allies are still very much um, on the side of First Nations people and acknowledge them as deserving a voice. So I just wanted to throw that in there because the last podcast episode I said, let's all vote yes. Mm. But anyway, all that aside, I'd love to introduce the co-hosts we have today from the Brains podcast, (laughs) which is Sarah and Heather Taylor. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you both? Oh, great. Thank you for having us. Yes. Thank you for having us. I want to just shout out that I'm um, joining in from Treaty Six Territory, the home of the Nehewa, Cree, Dene, Solatu, and on and on. Anyway, I just want to acknowledge that. Thank you so much. Would you ladies like to introduce yourself to our podcast listeners? Heather, would you like to start? Of course. I'd always love to start. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, um, there is, again, just like Sarah, there is uh, where I am in Manhattan, so I had to look this up because I normally am in Toronto, but in Manhattan, it's the ancestral homelands of the Canarsi, Lenape, and the Wappinger people. So I just awesome. wanted to throw that up there because I'm in New York City right now. Fabulous. I am Heather Taylor. I am a writer and a director. I write TV and films and podcasts about complicated family relationships often through a genre lens, which is why I'm so excited about today. Mm-hmm. I was a story editor on The Hardy Boys. I obviously co-host Brains with my amazing sister, Sarah. Um, and it's a podcast about how film and TV portray our brains. And so it feels like a very much a sister podcast to this podcast, which I'm so excited about. And my second feature is on lives on Netflix. It's called Lethal Love. I think it's actually in Australia. Yay! <laughs> oh, good. Not, not in Canada. It, yeah, it 
it's fun. <laughs> good for, as I was told by the producer, good with a glass of wine. And then I started out, but I started out with a playwright. I've authored three poetry collections and I'm a former journalist and ad person. And I was born with a non-visible disability. I have ADHD and I strive to destigmatize mental illness, disabilities, and poverty in my work. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And just like you say, I feel like brains and psychocinematic are two peas in a podcast. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> it's so great to have you on. Um, Sarah, would you like to introduce yourself as well? Yes, of course. So I am the sister of Heather, as she mentioned. I can officially say I'm Sarah Taylor CCE. I just got my accreditation for editing. So it's very exciting. Um, I am uh, an award-winning editor with over 20 years of experience in documentaries, television programs, like all the things you can think of I've cut. But I always strive to tell unique stories from Unheard Voices, which is also what we do with our podcast. So I both host, co-host the podcast Brains with Heather, and I also host an editing podcast called The Editor's Cut. So all I'd like to do is talk about brains, I talk about editing, and I edit. That is my life. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm very pleased Mm -hmm. to do all those things. It must be an extremely busy life because as someone who's only fully edited Psychocinematic in the last few months, it's a lot of work. Yeah, I'm busy. It definitely takes time. Tell everyone what CCE means because not everyone will know what that is. Yes, please. So CCE stands for Canadian Cinema Editors. Um, It's an organization that promotes and supports editing in Canada. So if you look at end credits and you see anybody that has an ACE, there's also an Australian version of it, which also might be ACE. (laughs) I'm not sure what the the letters are in there, but they have, they definitely have have one. Um, It just tells you that you are an awesome awesome editor, highest editor of in the country kind of thing, which feels weird to say you could be, but I just got my letters and it's very exciting. And this is the first time I get to say it out loud. So yay. Congratulations. That's awesome. I want to know which is the oldest sister. I'm the oldest sister, Heather. Yeah. I'm the oldest. (laughs) I feel like that's relevant to what we talk about today. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um when I um suggested you guys come on the podcast, we were talking about what we should cover, and you pretty much immediately suggested this piece of media, which is Haunting of Hill House. Mm-hmm. And I was so stoked. What made you both decide pretty much unanimously to choose this to focus on today? I just thought it was a brilliant series. And it scared the bejesus out of me. And I liked how there was more than just like the jump scares. There's more to the story than just being scared. So when we were talking about like spooky shows to to do around Halloween, it just made sense to talk about this. For me, I'm a, a huge fan of Mike Flanagan's work. It's kind of the not only the type of horror that I both enjoy and sc- actually scares me. I find like I could watch a slasher film and feel essentially nothing. But if you mm. have an emotional depth to characters like he does and this kind of emotional connection, I found sometimes in... Um, let's say Haunting Hill House, I was more scared and upset by some of the emotional moments than I was in some of the scares from the ghosts. Mm. But I think it's because he really creates a world not just where you have to beat the bad guy, but you actually have to grapple with whatever metaphor that he's put forward. So like Haunting Hill House's ghosts, but it's really about something internal within the characters. And so I love and how he plays with past and present. He does it in everything Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, because this belief that he says this himself, this idea of 
giving weight to their past trauma on their current selves because our mm. past does affect our future or our present. Mm. And um, I found a quote from him. He said, I really wanted to play with ghosts as an expression of the emotional wounds that we carry, how the past and present can echo each other, that moments don't fall like dominoes, they fall like confetti. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. Yeah. For me, I absolutely love his series, but it took me a while to recognize how good they were because they're so brilliantly made and so incredible, but they also make me feel awful (laughs) because he does it so well. So like the first time I watched this, I thought it took itself a bit too seriously and the acting was a little bit over the top and I wasn't as invested in it. But on the second watch of Hoarding of Hill House, I was just like, this is like the best show ever made, especially because it was like you're saying, it's so much of a, a like a meditation on grief and trauma and how the past and present in, intermingle and how you have to grapple with your own demons. But also it's so campy at the same time. It does it in a way that is... A little bit ridiculous, which makes it a good setting to explore those things in a way where it makes you feel terrible, but also you can exit out of it a little bit and like this, you know, this isn't reality. But like Midnight Mass, I think I love Midnight Mass the most because it just really affected me the most and it like gave me a panic attack at one oh, point. No. <laughs> but Hoarding of Hill House was close. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought it up because there's a lot of grief in it and Mm -hmm. what's going on in my family at the moment involves a lot of grief. So it's actually really relevant, but yeah, there's so much to explore. There's so much to unpack in this show. So I feel like it's going to be a very rich discussion. Yeah. And I'll say, I'll just shout out Midnight Mass was his most personal work. Um, Mm. So he said like, he's been trying to write Midnight Mass for years and it took him becoming sober to be Mm. able to actually write about something that talks about alcoholism. He's like, I could talk about alcoholism, Mm -hmm. but I couldn't talk about sobriety. And now once being sober, sober it allowed me to be able to actually talk about this so he's like if i if someone asked me to write this in 2014 i wouldn't have been able to write it and do it mm-hmm. i had to wait until i'd been sober but he actually references midnight mass in other films before midnight mm. mass was even made he has mm. as a novel in gerald's game the stephen king adaptation stephen king yeah midnight mass the novel is in that film mm. oh wow so like he'd been obsessed with this idea of this since he was he started thinking about this since he was 10 years old and an ultra boy when he lived on Governor's Island, which is really isolated, small community. So, wow, that's so interesting. I want to watch it again now that I haven't, now that I don't drink. Because mm-hmm. I feel like I watched my night mass when I was drinking. And I think it would be a different perspective. Yeah. Anyway, that's, uh, that's a side note. <laughs> that's a different show, but I know. Like, <laughs> But no, yeah. no, no, but like there's the character that uh, kills someone well, yeah, yeah. when he's drunk, but that is, yeah. was his biggest fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so he put yeah. that mm-hmm. to the play, which is I think a lot of times, I know I put my biggest fears into stuff yeah. all the time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I feel like for me, Midnight Mass was very much about the afterlife and death mm-hmm. and, and continuing on, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of my, thinking about that is one of my biggest anxiety triggers. So mm. exploring that. I'm sure that he's probably got a lot of his own fears wrapped up in that as well. Yeah. And it was very relatable in that way. But on Haunted Hill House. (laughs) (laughs) I guess the other thing is he tends to adapt a lot from like famous authors. So Haunting of Hill House was based on the book by Shirley Jackson, which was known as one of the most terrifying ghost stories ever written. And he also did Haunting of Blind Manor, which is based on Turn of the Screw by... 
Henry James, I think. Yes, it's Henry James, yes. And then the latest one, um, The House of Usher, is also based on an Edgar Allan Poe poem, I'm guessing. Um, I haven't read it. It's a, a book, yeah. He's just very poetic. So they, yeah. they even, we've only just started watching because I wanted to watch Hill House versus <laughs> you know, the, the Fall First, of the House of Usher. Same, I haven't started it okay, yet because I, I thought started, I'd get yeah. confused. In the pilot, you have actually so much Poe's, uh, so much of Poe's original language that I was like, oh my goodness, like mm-hmm. it's so cool to hear those words, but to, mm. in a kind of very contemporary context so I thought yeah 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 so he's very much like and and adapts things to a point where it's more relatable to right now but also is much more than the novel have you read The Haunting of Hill House by Shelley Jackson the book no I haven't actually I started listening to the audiobook but I didn't get through it (laughs) (laughs) but it seems quite different there's only really a few of the characters that are present in the tv show Eleanor Theodora and Luke are the characters who are in the house but they aren't related at all Mm. Um, and the Dudleys are also there but other than that a lot of like the the themes are the same but the actual plot is quite different it seems oh interesting well but that's the thing is that he's using these as a a jumping off point right Mm -hmm. yes like thematically but then also like great on him for finding ip yeah no kidding (laughs) that is like open i think it's all public domain so he's like I'm going to take this public domain and talk about stuff I want to talk about, but interconnect it with something that is known and then make it even more known. So I'm like, good on you, Mike Flanagan. It's a good way to do it. (laughs) Yeah. Super smart. (laughs) I'll just briefly discuss the plot and I'll just make it very open-ended because otherwise we'll be here for hours. So the summer of 1992, Hugh and Olivia Crane and their five children, Stephen, Shirley, Theo or Theodora, Luke and Eleanor or Nell, move into Hill House to renovate the mansion in order to sell it and build their own forever home designed by Olivia. However, due to unexpected repairs, they have to stay longer and they begin to experience increasing paranormal phenomena, resulting in a tragic loss and the family fleeing from the house. 26 years later, the Crane siblings and their estranged father reunite after another tragedy strikes, and they are forced to confront how their time in Hill House has affected each of them. If you haven't watched Haunting of Hill House, definitely watch it before you listen to this episode, but um, there's going to be lots of spoilers, but um, there's lots to unpack. And I guess one thing that I think it was a review said, it's not so much a paranormal story as so much as a meditation on the distinct way grief and trauma maim the living, Mm -hmm. as we've sort of alluded to. Mm -hmm. I looked up some lived experience of the creators and you both sort of had a lot to say about Mike Flanagan. Do you want to share? Do you want to share a little bit more about what you found out? Yeah, I think that uh, from what I looked at, growing up, his family relocated a lot because his dad was in the Coast Guard. So they basically moved around all over the place until he was in high school. So to me, like mm. the Haunting of Hell House, this mm-hmm. family who moves mm. from place to place, renovating houses, like flipping houses, I'm like, that's so reflective of not really having a home and your family being the mm. only tether is like with each other and Mm -hmm. the importance that comes with that movement. And then Mm -hmm. also like I I was reading like, and I, you know, you can see in his stuff, his core themes are domestic abuse, alcoholism, addiction, and then battling mental illness or dealing Mm -hmm. with mental illness. I don't like to say battling. Yeah. Um, But that's language from someone else. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He said directly, the Haunting Hill House is infused with his experiences with death in his extended family and includes specific imagery from his life. And um, Mm -hmm. he also said there's a very natural thing that happens where if you're writing anything that tiptoes into a personal place, 
you find yourself vomiting up all sorts of things into it. It happened mm. to me with Hill House in a pretty big way. So yeah. I couldn't find, he just says, most of his work is inspired by his experiences of his life, but I couldn't find him ever talking directly about these things. But with mm. its prevalence in so much of his work, I feel like most of this is deeply personal. Yeah, I think we could probably determine what's what some of the traumas that he's experienced in his life. And it's interesting you mentioned domestic abuse because I feel like in a lot of his media, there's a lot of like coercive control or mm. query, is this actually a good marriage or are there some sort of dynamics that are toxic and, and things like that inside them? And not just marriage, but also in relationships in general. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah, did you have anything to add? Just like I, I, li- I watched a few things where he talked about being like a showrunner and how he like directs things and the use of camera and like I just found it interesting how there's a mean I feel like he has a meaning to everything he puts out there like it's there's a purpose for all the things he chooses to do and I mm, and I found it's very deliberate yeah, it's very he's very deliberate in his way of filmmaking and I thought the music like all the choices he makes and I and it, it works really well especially the camera He's an editor. You know this, Sarah, right? I didn't know that. No. He's an editor first. He actually- Which then that makes total sense. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he chooses, now I know he, why. He films by the edit. So he actually totally. edited reality TV, including dra- second season of Drag Race. Oh my God, so really? This is, I should know this. I should interview him for my other- movie. Wow. But And second season of Drag Race is when like, like the first season's kind of a write-off. So- <laughs> When the things about that, that makes total sense. Yeah, he thinks about the edit and first. how he uses the camera in a way that really motivates the edit. Because a lot often, I found like I was really impressed with watching the the series. I'm taking it on a editing side note now, because <laughs> there wasn't often like there's one scene where there's no real at ed- like visual edits. It's all like one quote unquote take. Mm. It's not, but it is. And so like it's just so well done on that oh. side of things, and that storytelling is amazing. Yeah, a lot of it was. I talked to a camera guy who actually operated on it, but they hand off camera to people. Yeah. They will hand, I and think there was, a f- there was a few cuts. I don't know if I read that. Few, there was a few secret, like you, you hide the cuts in action, but yeah. Yeah, but there was like them going from the funeral home into the house was actually yeah. in studio. So it actually yeah. was that. They walked through into the house and it was I watched, that was actual. That was one of the best episodes. I watched it behind the scenes. So cool. And they had like a, they had a doll, not a dolly, a lift. Where they, mm-hmm. the camera stepped on, like the camera operator stepped onto the yeah. lift and then the, it lowered. Mm-hmm. So it looked like the camera was on a giant crane, but it was on yeah. a like mm-hmm. a lift they built in and then lowered and it to the ground down. and they kept walking. And they would I hand think there's the a behind the scenes somewhere that you can see yeah. how the operators worked. Anyway, it was anyway, so many really great filmmaking techniques that he Yeah. Plays. If you do find the behind the scenes, um, send it to me so I can pop it in yeah. the episode I'll notes because yeah. that would be great. To see. And it really shows that because I feel like editors don't get as much recognition as like the directors and writers, etc. It just highlights how important editing is to telling the story and how it can be used in yeah. such an effective way. Especially this genre. Yes. <laughs> it's all about the edits. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thank you. That's so interesting. I did a little bit of a deep dive into Shirley Jackson because I find her really fascinating. And I, I don't know if you've seen the film Shirley starring Elizabeth Moss, who plays Shirley Jackson. It's sort of a fictionalized version movie about sort of her later life and where she's, which is true, when she was a bit old, I think sort of in her 60s, she had some pretty severe agoraphobia and anxiety and sort of self-medicated with alcohol and drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the time she wasn't able to write. She had writer's block. And she also had quite a philandering husband who would just very openly have affairs with students 
students at the university where he taught. So, yeah, she had a pretty rough (laughs) time. And there's this movie which is kind of about that time. It's not a particularly great movie. Um, (laughs) I was a bit disappointed by it when I finally watched it. But Elizabeth Moss does an amazing job. So, you know, if people want to watch it, go ahead. But, yeah, it was interesting hearing Shirley Jackson's sort of experience of mental illness herself, Mm -hmm. which I think um, having not read the full original book, but there's definitely some themes of mental illness within that as well. And she explains that she had a very conservative family and parents who weren't particularly nice to her. Her mum really um, was undermining and demeaning and quite abusive towards her. And she was, she described herself as an outsider. She, she felt really lonely growing up. She would write about how the only sane people are the ones who are condemned as mad Mm. as as in her words and how the whole world is cruel and afraid of people who are different. So Mm. I think that really shines through in what I know of her novels. Mm -hmm. The only other piece of work that I've read is The Lottery. Yeah, I read that at school. Pretty iconic. Yeah, it was. it's often prescribed to, to students to read. I think we just read it during lockdown when we had a short short story book club to oh, get nice. us through. That's a good idea. Yeah, it was good. Everyone should read The Lottery. It's, it's very relevant to today, I think. I won't spoil it. But I think she's, you know, she's pretty much held up as a very – Interesting author with a lot to say about society, a lot to say about mental illness and about being a woman as well and being Mm. a a wife, uh, which is something that she sort of found herself being and not really particularly having a lot of control over that role. Mm. Um, This quote was interesting. She said, I wrote of neuroses and fear, and I think all of my books laid end to end would be one long documentation of anxiety. (laughs) I I can agree with, well, maybe not all of her, but with this show... (laughs) Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. Apparently she died quite mentally quite well. Um, She died of in her sleep of a heart attack Um, and she was in a pretty good place and she was in the middle of writing her last novel. So it's I'm comforted to know that she was not struggling with a lot of mental neuroses that she had. But, yeah, she, I just find it really interesting just based on the content that she wrote about. Yeah, and that they become so much part of our world as well. Right. Yeah, especially given like this um, novel, Haunting of Hill House, was uh, made into a film. Yeah. Twice. A couple yeah. of films. Yeah, twice. Yeah, twice. Uh, the Haunting and The Haunting of Hill House. Yeah, like you say, her, her work is quite timeless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. So the actors, I had a look through at all the different actors and any sort of lived experience yeah, like that this. they had. Mm-hmm. Um, did you guys manage to have a have a look as well? Well, I looked at your list. I was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they got a lot of stuff going with them too. A I mean, lot. oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. I'll just maybe mention the ones that where there was some information because not mm. everyone. And some of them are quite new actors, although they're all, most of them appear in all of Mike Flanagan's works, yeah. which is great. It's really fun. It's really cool. And I even noticed in the new series, the yeah. mom... Right? Yes, is it? And I was oh like, yeah, tons of them are. Tons of the. I love. Characters. I love that part. Anyway, yes. So yeah, I love an ensemble. I want to say when you see the same crew and the same actors working mm-hmm. with a director, you know they're good. Like not just, like yes. that, not just they're good at their job. They are good people good, to work with. Good because humans. Yeah. Yes. Good humans. So 
they want to keep working with each other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love that. Especially mm. when the crew sticks around. That's like a really good sign, <laughs> I think, as a crew yeah. member. <laughs> a very good sign. Just a side note, I love the Newton Brothers. Just a shout out to the composers of all of Mike Flanagan's work mm. and a few other things too. But I follow them on Twitter. I listen to their stuff whenever I'm writing. I like every every time I'm like shouting, I'm like, write and listen to your stuff today. And they're like, way to go. And I'm like totally in love with them. I'm like, I want them to write to be the musicians composers for my horror feature that I want to do soon so I'm like if you're listening Newton Brothers just know I'm coming for you <laughs> well, you're, li- you're listening to them while you're writing your spooky shows your scary shows yeah, I think that's literally so- yeah I love it and not spooky shows too I was listening to the ho- oh, okay. House of Usher while I was writing a like family drama set in the music industry so <laughs> Which has its own horror element. Exactly. Oh, yeah. I think, you, I think your themes your themes play through everything, Heather. There's always something a little scary. <laughs> yes. yes. Brilliant. Yeah, but unfortunately, I didn't kind of look up the crew because, um, yeah. I don't know what their lived experience is. I love them. Exactly. I'm, sh- I'm sure they don't get interviewed as often as these guys. But just a few things. Carla Gugino as Olivia Crane, the matriarch, um, has had some early trauma in her life she had a kidney surgery at five years old and led to a near-death experience so yeah that's all I could find but I'm sure that has definitely shaped some of her work and she's quite established Mm. in um she was in Spy Kids I just realized that the other day I'm like yeah she's a mom Spy Kids the mom mom. (laughs) which is funny because she's not actually as old as I thought she was um she just kind of plays that really maternal Mm -hmm. she just has that maternal sort of look about her Mm -hmm. timothy hutton who plays hugh the older hugh sadly uh not great news but there was a sexual assault accusation Mm. which he was faced no charge from Mm. but you know that doesn't sound great anyway that's that's not relevant to what we're talking about but i just thought it's worth mentioning henry thomas was um the younger hugh crane and he was the young boy in et which is wild to me mm-hmm. um he's a fantastic actor but obviously given that he was exposed to fame quite early on that was a lot for him and he yeah. was very conscious of not wanting to be you know the child actor that goes off the rails mm-hmm. he has had some alcohol issues in his past uh, was arrested for drunk driving and also is a quite avid mental health advocate yeah, he was lucky in that he wasn't one of the, you know, like Corey Haim yeah. <laughs> sort of on the in the news everywhere as being really struggling with fame as he grew up. I feel like he he went away, like he took himself yeah, out of did. Hollywood. And this was yep. this like one of the first things when he was I back so, in because yeah. I remember that being a yep. thing where like, oh my god, it's Elliot from ET. This is so yeah, cool. And, yeah. and then he proceeded to be in the Haunting of Bly Manor, and then now he's exactly. in um, the new one is in the House yep. of Usher. Yeah. Every character is completely different. And it's amazing to see him in this new. I was like, holy, like, he is just so talented. He's just so like, good. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so great that he's able to now just mm-hmm. choose all these roles that mm-hmm. are fantastic roles and not be sort of typecast. And he hasn't, he looks different enough from being a kid that people aren't going to be like, oh, it's just Elliot. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of the trajectory of his short round in oh, Indiana uh, Jones. Yeah. Yeah, Key. I remember his last name, but yeah. 
Oh, he's yeah. And now he's in Loki. He hui. Yes. Yeah, oh. and um, thanks to everything, everywhere, all at once, mm-hmm. he's just like now one of the most established actors after having such a huge break, um, and it's worked quite well. well he moved for him. He moved behind the scenes. Actually, he was. Yeah, a, he was. Uh, he Juan, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And he was doing um, like stunts choreography. Yeah, yeah, fake choreography. That's what. I yeah, exactly. So I think that's really interesting, and and it also shows his range as well. The fact that all these actors play such different roles in the same sort of mm-hmm. series shows that they're you know he's a fantastic actor, and also it sounds like he had some family trauma as well they weren't particularly positive about his foray into acting mm. and tried to stop him mm. uh olivia jackson cohen who plays luke crane um has a lot to say about mental illness because he was in a quite a few films that i've seen including um the invisible man oh yeah which is a great film and he's talked about he's had a lot of articles where he's talked about how toxic masculinity is so awful and he really wants to play the roles of someone who perpetuates that to show how damaging it can be, whereas mm. a lot of people tend to avoid those roles because they don't want to be seen in that light. Mm. But he's very, very much anti-domestic abuse, etc., and described himself as quite sensitive as well, which is very similar to his character. But he also mentioned that he was diagnosed with PTSD a few years ago and he's mm. had some childhood trauma in his past, which he brought into the role of Luke. So he said that it felt really cathartic to be able to put it all out there and be there um, and use all his stuff in his past to play that role. So that's pretty fantastic. I thought he was excellent yeah. in it. Mm. Yeah, I did too. Mm-hmm. It felt very authentic. Mm-hmm. Theo. Um, who's my favorite character, I think. <laughs> the adult version is played by Kate Siegel, who is married to Mike Flanagan mm-hmm. and has a four-year-old. Well, that's the last article I read, which is maybe last year. And she, I think if you're married to the auteur that is Mike Flanagan, how could you not have some, you know, influence and also some feelings and authenticity in the well, roles? Yeah, they, they only got married in 2016. So it's more, they have a oh, more wow. recent relationship, but that's kind of when mm. they started working together. Yeah, I was going to, when did this come out? 2019? 2018, I think. Okay. Yeah. So in 2016, she was in a feature film that he did. And it must be interesting being married to and be, such a creative person. Yeah, and putting to be able to like put some of yourself or some of the things that you know you want to talk about in there too. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just a side note: the young version of Theo uh, McKenna Grace has scoliosis hmm. because I also have scoliosis. Oh, scoliosis is very common, but um, that she's someone who came up as someone who has you know gone through the treatment for scoliosis, and yeah, that's it's hard stuff. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just thought that was interesting. She also. In the new Ghostbusters. Yep. That's her, Oh, right? is she? Yep. Ghostbusters Afterlife. That's the name. As I'm wearing my Ghostbusters oh, shirt. Cool. She is so good and so different. Her character, so different. Yeah. She even looks completely yeah. different for, from what she does in other films. She's such a very versatile young actress. That's mm-hmm. amazing. Lastly, Victoria Pedretti plays Eleanor or Nell, and she... As is very open about the fact she was diagnosed with ADHD, although at the time it was ADD mm-hmm. when she was six years old. Mm-hmm. So. She did mention as well she's had an abusive childhood, mm. um, but didn't go into details, and that's completely reasonable. Um, but also felt some. She's she's sort of discussed in an interview how she felt about the ADD diagnosis and didn't feel like the label suited her and didn't enjoy having that label. So. Mm. Yeah. And of course, you know, she was diagnosed quite early on in her life. So there was a lot less understanding and yeah, acceptance yeah. of that diagnosis at the time, I'm sure. I think things are continuing to shift. So mm-hmm. like anything, like it's just like an ever evolving other people learning how to understand and then yeah. allowing yourself to be able to be like, yes, this is me. And 
that's okay. Exactly. Yeah. I was just going to add, so I, I didn't rewatch the whole series because it was too scary for me <laughs> to watch it all at once <laughs> again. But um, when I started watching it, I was like, oh my gosh, Nell is from the series You and she's yes. her character in You is very bad. <laughs> like good, yeah. but like she's like, I was like, oh. So it, like there's like re-watching it with the, the character love from You mm-hmm. and then Nell, because she seems so like gentle and she's helping everybody lift you up and all this stuff lovely person and then she's like a murderer i'm like whoa (laughs) but like in that world of this haunted house and she's being a ghost and then she also has this other character anyway it was really kind of fun to watch it knowing the other character and another example of someone who's just so versatile he can play someone who's so manipulative Mm -hmm. and awful and someone who's just so going through it and having just trying to be Mm -hmm. the best person she could be and just struggle yeah. yeah. It's interesting as I've just lately I've noticed a lot of actors come out and say that they've got ADHD and I feel like I don't know what you guys might think of this but I wonder if the film industry attracts a lot of neurodivergent people because of the nature of it yes. and um yep. the busyness and the stimulation mm-hmm. and yeah. Well it's no 100% it's also like yep. the changeability you get to move from thing to thing mm-hmm. there's no you have a different I mean it's not necessarily the best for you but when you are working you have a very strict defined schedule which is mm-hmm. perfect for the ADHD brain. Mm-hmm. Like when I'm yep. in a writer's room is actually the time that I'm working the best because I have hours specific hours and when I'm on script, I know when specifically when things are due. And mm-hmm. I, I have to like advocate for myself when I'm not in that because a lot mm-hmm. of times working with producers on projects, you're like, okay, when's the deadline? Like, when does it feel right? And I'm like, oh, honey, don't <laughs> call, say that to me. I've actually said, I'm like, <laughs> I'll work on this day and night and not sleep. So you need to tell me what's reasonable. They're like, oh, yeah, uh, three weeks. I'm like, great. Three weeks it is. Like, that's fine. <laughs> Mm. But I feel like, Heather, you take that structure that you have from a writer's room and you put it into your day-to-day when you're not in a writer's room, which is what I see you do, which I think is Mm -hmm. really good, that maybe not all writers would do that. Well, it's a little deceiving because in a way I do, like I I work every day, but I don't necessarily give myself the breaks that I need. Yes. I allow myself sometimes to hyper-focus and work for a 10-hour day. Like I had a delivery on the 13th and I worked until midnight and I started that day at 9 a.m. Mm-hmm. And So I, there's nobody telling you to stop because you're not no done for the day in the writer's room. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. So I'm, I'm trying to give myself more like, okay, I'm going to, I will finish it this time and I'll go make dinner and I'll do this and go for a walk. But I, because I do move from thing to thing or even place to place, I live in different countries, I need transition periods. I don't give myself sometimes a day off between big projects. Like I'm trying to learn how to do that more. Whereas I know Mm -hmm. other people, which is difficult. Like I talked to someone the other day. They're like, how are you so prolific? And I said, ADHD. I was kind of being (laughs) cheeky. And they're like, but how? Like my child has ADHD and I can't get them to do their homework. I'm like, because it's not interesting. I love writing and I love being in these worlds and sometimes it's very hard and I have to trick myself like I have to go to coffee shops I have to print off something and take it somewhere I have to change the environment change the medium like I have to do different things but it's like it's something I love and it's a puzzle and I'll go back and like how do I fix this puzzle how do I make this one page less like it's those are games it's a challenge I find it's a challenge and my brain loves that Whereas I know people who I've talked to who have ADHD, probably inter um, ADHD I, they're like, oh, inattentive, inattentive, sorry, <laughs> inattentive. Yeah. Um, that's the word. Uh, they're like, <laughs> I can do it once and then I'm I can't do more. Like I can't. Mm. I have a tr- I have trouble and I'm like, oh, but I hyper focus. Like, mm-hmm. mm. but it damages my body and my bladder and my life yeah. and like my relationship. So. <laughs> 
it's interesting you say like the switching medium and switching places is I do that too with editing. I don't have ADHD. I wonder if there that's part of just a creative thing too. Like some mm. of that stuff, like a creative process. Why thing not? That could maybe be. a lot of creatives have. Yeah, it depends on your process. Everyone has a different yeah. process. Mm. Some uh, Stephen King, he doesn't. I don't know what Stephen King has. Probably something, but <laughs> there's something there. <laughs> I mean, look at what he's writing. But he gets to his desk and he has a very defined like I write from this time to this time. Yeah, and that's my time. Mm. It's and it's hard. Like I will put off. I wrote this thing where I knew that. Act three of six, the midpoint, was going to be really emotionally difficult. And I was going to cry while I wrote it Mm. because it was people telling their truth in a very Mm. damaging way. And I'm like, I'm leaving that to last because Mm. Mm -hmm. it is actually emotionally draining and difficult. Mm -hmm. And someone I was talking to, another writer was like, that's some of the most fun. I'm like, not saying it's not fun. I'm just saying Mm. it's going to hurt my heart and I need to to give it like its own space. And I won't be able to write anything else unless I give it space. And you saying that, Mm. I just talked with an editor who cut a really intense series and there was one scene in it she cut Dahmer and it's the the victim statement scene she yeah. had to wait to the end because it was so important and so heavy anyway yeah, mm. yeah so like I, I just think creativity in general is just so cool but that's not what it's we're, fascinating that's not what you're yeah. talking about but I think it's fascinating yes I think that's a really important point because I feel like there's a lot of misunderstanding around ADHD and that mm. if you can't concentrate on anything then you have ADHD or if if you know you struggle in class and like I've been in that position where they're exploring an ADHD diagnosis but they're saying oh but they really like art but they can't concentrate in math so if they can do it in in art then clearly they have the capability and they don't have ADHD it's yeah. just behavior or whatever and it's like no <laughs> that's not that's not yeah the truth it's if it's interesting and stimulating then yeah that's exactly th- there's yeah. the capability that doesn't mean they don't have adhd i said to this guy who's the dad i said uh we have a different drivers than other mm. people mm. like mm-hmm. i remember being at a job where they tried to like motivate me with money i'm not motivated by money in any way <laughs> so i'm like that's <laughs> awesome i want more money like i why wouldn't i but but it's not going to make you more productive no i'm going to do the same but i'm like it's like interest and it's novelty which is i think mm. the creative space of jumping mm-hmm. from project to project mm-hmm. yes and um you know, I think sometimes, especially as a writer, they try to pin you into like, you're only uh, this writer. Mm-hmm. And my agent's great because he's like, write whatever you want. And thematically, they're all very similar. But I can write across genres because mm-hmm. and I'm like, because otherwise my brain would like implode, like I wouldn't be able to function if I couldn't just do lots of different things because mm-hmm. it's where my brain wants to go. And so I allow it to, to do that because I'm like, yeah. no one, no one can, no one can put, don't put baby in the corner, right? Like it's, I am. <laughs> I'm like, I have oppositional defiance, like, please. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to, you tell me not to do it, I will 100% do it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why I've never thought of this before with, like, obviously, Heather and I, our sisters, we talk all the time, we have a po- podcast together, but her way of working is exactly the way I work and my world. And I'm always jumping between shows and genres and things. And I've never really connected that. At well, I just think it's really interesting that we, we both do that. I'm going to throw out another like thing of we also come from the world of so we grew up very poor yeah. and grew up. <laughs> no, we grew up with, you know, a very difficult situation. And I joke, but not joke that I write like poverty is chasing me. Yes. And I think yeah. that there is the reason why we're doing so many things is not just because this is a creative process. It's like, how do I do as many things as I can so I don't drown? Yeah. And then I'll be drowning mm-hmm. in all the things that I have to do. Well, of course, it's like not yes. useful, but it's not we useful, carry yeah. our trauma with us yeah. from that. Mm-hmm. And we're like, we might, I like, I have a hard time. Like, my husband's like, you have enough things going. 
I'm like, no, I'm going to go do this pitch thing. Why? You literally have no more time. And I was like, but, mm. but I have to be prepared for what's next. And so lots of people are like, you're amazing. You have all these things you're doing. And I'm like, it's a compulsion and a love, but it's also a, a huge, huge fear that drags me down and mm-hmm. seeps out of my core when I'm in the like a place of, which is I think very relative to the show that we're talking about, but like it seeps into me in a way that like sometimes it just seeps out of me. That idea of like, I, I overshare, but I will overshare about everything. Like, mm. uh, I guess I'm eating ramen for the next, like, whatever months. I can't, you know, do this job or I can't do part, you know, it's like, no matter how much work you do, it, it's a long game. Yeah. But it's a f- fear-driven economy. <laughs> so I'm like, how do you not be full of fear when you come from a place where mm. you literally at times didn't eat? Always been full yeah. of fear. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways. And I guess also there's modeling as well, perhaps, between yes. sisters as well. <laughs> I've completely forgotten already. Heather, were you the, are you the older sister? I'm the oldest, yes. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you've perhaps modeled to your younger sister. Yeah. You know, this is the process you have and you mm-hmm. can't help but pick it up, Sarah, because. Possibly, yeah, yeah, possibly. You know. I had ambition for days. Like I was going to be the youngest author. There was a girl in my grade six class who was a really good illustrator. And I was like, well, we're going to make a book together. And she's like, I just like drawing. I don't want to write a book. <laughs> and I was like, but we must because we must be the youngest authors. And just, she didn't go for it. And it really ruined my future. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, girl, from grade. I think you're doing very well, though, regardless of that part. (laughs) Young girl. (laughs) So on that note, let's let's pivot (laughs) to... No, no, this is so interesting. But I guess the big question that Haunting of Hill House poses is, is what's going on mental illness or is it ghosts? Which doesn't have an answer. I, don't, mm-hmm. I feel like the answer at the end is it's probably both or it's yes. not. It's neither. Mm-hmm. But the, the usual question we ask at this point in the podcast is what is the accuracy of what we see on screen? And this is a fantastical piece, mm-hmm. but there are definitely some mental illnesses or processes that we see in the film, which is also, I think we agree, is explored through the metaphors of ghosts Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. spirituality what were your thoughts on I guess that big question in general yeah I think there's definitely lots of the ghosts are the things that haunt us but also haunt us on screen like I think it it did a good job of I know for myself because I deal with I have generalized anxiety disorder there's so many moments when that anxiety felt like it just felt so authentic (laughs) to how I feel and so Mm. I think they portrayed those moments amazingly like it it just took me to places that I maybe didn't want to go sometimes so then I had to hide under the blanket but Mm -hmm. um but those are and that's carried from trauma too. sometimes some of the trauma stuff I think they did a good job yeah I mean Flanagan says a love story and a ghost story is similar but I'd say like every experience and a ghost story similar the idea he said when we fall in love with someone we're birthing a new ghost Mm -hmm. something that will follow us for the rest of our lives Mm -hmm. but if you actually expand that and say Every experience yeah. we have mm. is a ghost we carry yeah. Yeah. for the rest yeah. of our lives because it yeah. is. Yeah. And I think with anxiety, like yeah. there's so many moments that I'm like, something will like, I'll hold on to in my anxiety brain. And it is like carrying a ghost with me. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling emotional about that idea, but that's totally what it is. It's like you, you have these moments in life that maybe somebody who didn't deal with anxiety would just like, it would float away. It would go into the other world, right? It would cross over. Yeah. But we hold on to these, I'll hold on to those feelings or those, yeah. those thoughts yeah. will take me and it'll, it'll sit with me just like the, the, the man in the hat, right? Just yeah. follows him. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think it's both because it's like the ghosts are a metaphor. It's grappling. They are your internal thing. I like what Steve said, Stephen said, um, ghosts are guilt, ghosts are secrets, yeah. ghosts are regrets, are failings, but most times ghosts are a wish. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was beautiful. Yeah. I guess there's different ways of looking at it because I feel similar to you, Sarah, in that a lot of my generalized anxiety <laughs> just sort of comes out in some of those fears of my, you know myself failing mm -hmm. but also things that have happened in the past that put me back there yep uh, like yeah like PTSD or maybe even complex PTSD mm -hmm. where the ghost is you know what could have been mm -hmm. or what mm -hmm. I thought was going to happen that didn't happen or whatever it might be and coming back to haunt you mm -hmm. and particularly with maybe skipping ahead a bit but with um Nell's bent neck lady the fact that she's constantly haunted through her whole life by this this woman who ends up being herself mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like that's like whoa yeah and <laughs> it's that, just like yeah. shit and it feels like that still feels so relevant to anxiety when it's kind of 100 unmanaged or you don't understand your safety mechanism your safety behaviors or the mm. things that you do to keep it going is that you mm. are the person that you are Causing you're afraid that. of yeah you're doing it to yourself and it's yeah. yeah and I have pretty severe death anxiety that I've learned strategies to manage but when it hits mm -hmm. it's like really hard to shift from and I feel like that's such a metaphor for it because we're you know it's inevitable we're all gonna die yep. and yeah. being afraid of that is so it feels ridiculous because like what can you do about it and I feel like that was a really good metaphor for that and like she could not escape mm -hmm. the bent neck lady because she was the bent neck yeah. lady oh it really hits me <laughs> yeah I think there is something that I originally I was thinking a lot about I originally thought well it's about the inevitability, mm. right? Of of like when you have mental illness, the inevitability in your family sometimes that it, you'll have it or whatever. But mm. then I started thinking about, is it more about a representation of suicidal ideation? Mm. This idea that it's actually, even though it ends up being an accident in the end, her death, like that idea, did she choose or did she not? And it really feels like she didn't choose. But is it something where it's like the idea of dying and the idea mm. of looking at death and thinking about death, but in the way that it's represented in this film is really her death, mm. her actual death, because she's thinking about her actual death. And so even mm. though we then go, it's actually her death and she's haunted by herself. I'm like, but she's haunted about the idea of death. Yeah. And the fact that according yeah. to everybody, she ends her own life, whether yes. it's a choice or not, mm -hmm. she's haunted by Yeah, whether she meant to, or is she skirting that like the idea mm. of like is this something I really want like but that obsession that thinking of death and like there are people sometimes from what I understand that that they have the suicidal ideation but they still let someone know like she like they still let someone know and there is a chance for them to live yeah. and so yeah. they are skirting it but not necessarily whereas there's other people who don't tell mm -hmm. anyone and then they're found yeah. and so yeah. Like, yeah we know this from our own experience with family but like yeah then you have that question of like you know did she mean to die or is it more that she was trying to find a way to get relief and find closure, but in doing mm. so ends up dying? Yeah, which just that in itself is a metaphor for being suicidal and having that ideation yes. uh -huh. and trying to – and depression uh -huh. in general yeah. and, and mm -hmm. just wanting to feel – to stop. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think also often – like I also have lived with depression in my life and I have – people in my life that have dealt with depression like chronically and there's always this not for me but there has been people I've known that the idea is that I will eventually die by suicide 
that is just inevitable. That's just something that's going to happen. And so mm. I don't know if that's what Nell, like mm. the bent neck lady is showing her like, well, eventually this is what's going to happen. And maybe be mm. expressive state is, well, eventually it's just going to get to that. So how can I just, yeah, it's just going to show me that all the time because that's where I'm going to end up. Mm. Yeah. Whether and she goes away. She goes away and then comes back after her husband dies. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. She, so it's sort of yeah, that. Yeah, she went back into that depressive state again, right? Mm -hmm. Which is when, there you go, which is when you often have these ideas of suicide because it's, yeah. you want the pain to stop. To yeah. stop. Yeah. I think it's also relevant that she tries to tell everybody and is not believed and not validated in what's happening to her. Yeah. And I feel like that's, it feels quite resonant in maybe maybe a, a metaphor for society and that there's there's not enough resources and support mm -hmm. out there for people in these situations where they can actually get the help they need and mental illness is not given as much gravity and mm -hmm. legitimacy as physical illness mm -hmm. is. And I'm yeah. being very broad, but. <laughs> it's true though. You know, if someone just maybe, yeah, this is happening to you. And I, her husband was probably the closest it came yes. to that. And then he died. He was literally her technician for her sleep paralysis. No one yeah. believed her but her sleep paralysis. And he did. And yeah. he was there to help her through it. And no one else was there to help her through it. And then she did try like little things like Stephen says, like you in your crystals mm -hmm. and you're like, yeah. he's like making fun of her really grasping at straws at anything. Like what's going to give me relief? And the one thing would be, could be maybe this idea of her family actually stop running from their pain and stop running yeah. from and hiding and being cowards. They were being cowards yeah. in terms of their own. That's really harsh to say, but they didn't want to face what was going yeah. on, right? In different ways. Yeah. In different ways. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, if they believed her, mm -hmm. if they allowed them to say, yes, this is real, then they would have to admit that what they're dealing with was real 100%. too. Exactly. And so it was too difficult. Which is a lot. Yeah. So then instead mm. they're like, she's just, and she'll be fine because she goes through these states and then everything's fine until everything isn't. And how often though yeah. does that happen in a family? Exactly. Like, yes, yeah. All the time. And I like, I've been guilty of that in the past with my own family members. Sorry, family. But, <laughs> and I'm sure the same things happened for me when I was in like intense bouts of anxiety. Cause I think you can, like, you can't fix the person. You can't just make it stop. Like you yeah. just have to be mm. there. And it's sometimes really hard. Yeah. And you have to yeah. sit with it you in that discomfort. It. And that's and then really if, difficult. If, unchecked, if you have things that you're dealing with, it's hard to be with someone who's maybe not well, if you're not well. If you're not ready to face mm. that. So I can see it's so it's human nature in a lot of ways. It sucks, but I think we see that a lot with Theo, like when she goes and visits her yeah. and she gets really frustrated with mm -hmm. her in the state of her room and yeah. says, I just wanted to hang with my sister and go to the beach and cry. Like yeah. The way that she wanted to deal yes. with it was not what Nell was in the state to do. Right. Like she is so highly empathetic, like literally because <laughs> she, like, touch she yeah, touches exactly. people and can, she can't help it. She can't help it. But because she can be so insightful, she's actually emotionally yes. unavailable. That's yeah. her protection. So she's like, I'm just going to like check out. Yeah. yeah. And so she doesn't want Nell yeah. to want to talk about it because then she has yeah. to talk about it. So instead... Mm -hmm. Like, and that's how super about, painful for yeah, her. Yeah. How about I drink instead? Yeah. Or have sex. Yeah. And how or, about I, I'm going to just destroy myself, but I'm going to make sure that no children mm -hmm. hurt, get hurt anymore. Mm -hmm. Like she's yeah. helping other people, but never herself. She's yeah. directing that mm -hmm. empathy to others who need it because that's easier to do. Yeah. And then trying to numb her own experiences and how it affects her. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about sleep paralysis? Yeah. Is that can we talk about that now? Yes, let's talk. It's about that. intense, and I can I have had sleep paralysis a few times, and one time was when Heather, I was mm. visiting Heather in London, and it does feel like 
there is something coming for you. Mm. It is terrifying. And it, it comes about when you're stressed or your sleep schedule is all yeah. like wonky or whatever it might be. But a very cool thing to use as something in a film a series like this, because it is very it is almost supernatural when you, when you have that experience or paranormal or whatever you want to say. Yeah, that's like explainable, but not when you're not when it's happening because like you're no, I, you're like laying there and you can't move and you hear this loud sound and like you can see but you can't see and you can see your arm and you're moving it but it's not moving like it is intense until you understand what it yeah. is. And I think it was with Heather. I'd experienced it probably three or four times and then I was with Heather and I said this thing happened like what is going on because I hadn't really talked about it and then because <laughs> you're really great at research you started looking up the symp- the things I was telling you and you you were able to ex- we were you know I was able to learn what it was and we had an expl- explanation so the next time it happened because it's happened especially when I had my daughter it happened a few times again disruption of sleep and all the things mm, mm-hmm. but I was like oh this is happening just wait a few seconds and I was able to like talk myself while I'm in the state out of it until my arm would move right mm. but if I didn't have that that research component <laughs> Heather telling me like oh this is a thing you're not like you're not losing your mind which is what I thought was happening yeah yeah so like her husband supporting her through that and then having that be gone and oh yeah, it's hard. Yeah, hard to watch. I know just a little bit about the history of sleep paralysis and that there was those sort of experiences in the past of ghosts or of spirits or mm-hmm. demons, mm-hmm. which would, when you look back, it was yeah. actually sleep paralysis that was happening. Because it makes sense because you're you're not fully awake, you're still sleeping, you can still be dreaming, mm-hmm. but you your body's is in that, you're asleep state, so your muscles can't yeah. move. Yeah, it's super terrifying. I've only experienced it a few times but I had a friend who I lived with who had night terrors (laughs) poor thing it was awful and yeah I feel like that was conveyed fairly well in that like the strategies that he was talking through seemed pretty Mm. like Mm. legitimate and helpful and also just the fact that you know while she was with him they weren't really happening but then you know they came up every now and then which suggests you know she's going through a stressful time and then when he does pass away they're amped up Mm -hmm. again I think Yeah. yeah Well, especially as I'm sorry, but Nell and uh, Nell and Luke got the really the <laughs> bad really end did. of the stick because I know. they not only were completely terrorized by ghosts, they mm. also were of a family that were all emotionally unavailable. Yes. They were abandoned. They literally Luke was almost murdered by his own mother. Mm. And like, it's like, very bad. Yeah. <laughs> like they and then like Nell loses her husband. She's abandoned. She's unprotected by her family. Her twin brother is like ruined by addiction and she's essentially helping him because she has no one else to turn to to help her. She's internalizing all of her pain. Of course she's having sleep yes. paralysis and, <laughs> and thoughts of death. Yeah. Yes. Like she is like, no one and will listen to her. Her older siblings are sort of like treating her like a burden yeah. as they do with mm-hmm. Luke as well. And something yeah. they just have to deal with, which is just does not help. Yeah. And also, if you really think about it, Stephen, both Stephen and Shirley became their parents mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, like, they, they were support being, them financially, and but yeah. they were being parented. Luke never had to grow up; he didn't learn coping mechanisms. Mm. Like, it's just they were left adrift with the only parental figures were two emotionally unavailable children. Yeah, yeah, who, who were, were also going through their own exactly. trauma yes. and processing of what had happened. And then Theo's off doing whatever because she's the middle child and was like, "Peace," <laughs> and then like, <laughs> like I'm out. And then you this this weird dichotomy of children taking care of children and another yeah. and an emotionally unavailable father who realizes eventually that he really screwed up. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting everyone's memories of 
of what happened and how they cope yes. with it and their memories of the mother yeah. as well and yeah. how that they've come to those places of coping. Like for Stephen, he remembers the nurturing mm-hmm. maternal yeah. woman that she was before all of these traumas happened. So he's just like, it was mental illness. Dad didn't deal with it. Fuck you yeah, all. <laughs> we're all having it. Um, no one will talk about mental illness in this family, but he doesn't do it in a way of understanding. It's just like, yeah, mental illness is terrible and we, you know, I don't want to have kids. I don't want my kids to have mental illness because it's this horrible. And that's why he finds it all so frustrating and he can, he just identifies like Luke and Nell as like people who are unable to help yeah. themselves. Yeah. But yet he makes all this well, money he, off of, I don't know how much money he made, but you know, he's like writes uh, ghost mm. sto- the stories of his well, the trauma and makes ma- to work yeah, for he him. He manipulates yeah, it yeah. To, to serve yeah. himself. He's a fixer, right? His dad's a fixer. Mm. He's a fixer. And I get the, this as someone who's He was the fixer, fixer as the older exactly. child. Yeah. Exactly. As the oldest yes. fixer here. Yes. Recovering <laughs> fixer. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes, one more time. <laughs> and the anger it would bring inside of mm-hmm. me to not be able to fix things, to be the repetitiveness of like anxiety that dealing with other people's anxiety and being like, mm-hmm. but just then don't do that anymore or yeah. leave that person or make a different choice because like you are making me into an insane person. <laughs> and then when you're like, I don't, that's what I felt like. And I don't, I don't yeah. not saying it lightly. I was just like, oh my God, I'm, I'm so angry. And I realized it's because I felt um, powerless mm. and the fixing comes with control mm-hmm. and control yes. means that you're safe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so in Steve, I see someone who has controlled his life to a point where he's alone yeah. and lonely and who is basically terrified that he like if he lets go of control that he too will like I talk about this a lot like I always waited for a long time for the other shoe to drop when am I going to have agoraphobia when will I not be able to leave my house when will I have anxiety Mm. like when will I have these things I know it's inevitable and I'm scared Mm. I don't have those things but it was that fear that I carried with Mm. me and I feel the same thing where he's like he creates this state of control and anger and dismissiveness because he has to that's the only thing he can tether himself to um, yeah and I, it keeps him yeah contained and keeps him contained yeah. and this like idea that well if i can lean on something rational yes that it means that's the only thing that's mm-hmm. real and it's mm-hmm. so doing so has completely severed his emotions mm-hmm. from his rational yeah. brain and he no doesn't think in any emotional way it's all through the guise of like the rational brain yeah. and we are human, so we need both sides. We have to make decisions with both mm-hmm. things. And in doing so, you saw in the show how he actually isolated himself from everything and everyone because of his skepticism, mm-hmm. because of his inability to be emotionally connected to anyone. I think you see that through the earliest scene where he's at the yeah. woman's house investigating some possible paranormal activity. And the way he deals with it is just so matter of fact and dismissive. Yeah of her and she's like so you're saying that what I saw wasn't what I saw he feels like it's his job to rationalize away everything Mm -hmm. that's his purpose that's why I love the episode is called Steve sees a ghost and it's Mm. the first time he sees a ghost and it's of his sister who he basically like let down Mm -hmm. because he's going to carry that abandoned and he's abandoned and he's going to carry that with him and I think throughout the whole film is him trying to not succumb to his fear that he experiences mental illness himself so seeing that's really rattled him and you can see him like during the uh two storms episode where they're in the funeral home he's constantly saying get get it together get it together like don't slip into what Mm -hmm. he sees everybody else going into that he Mm -hmm. cannot yeah like for himself at the end of the show 
when you have the scene that you will never have mm-hmm. where the you can mm-hmm. talk to the person who died and apologize yeah. and essentially wipe away the sins that, and the guilt that you'll be carrying, the ghosts that you'll carry of your sibling yeah. by saying like, oh, I'm sorry that I didn't pick up the phone. I'm sorry. And then, but Stephen mm. says, I'm sorry I never listened. And I think that's a big mm. thing of like fixers. The thing that I've learned personally is that you have to ask the question, do you want mm. to fix this or do you want me to listen? Yeah. And then once you have that answer, then that's what you need to do. And all he needed to do was mm-hmm. listen. Mm-hmm. And he could not yeah. be open enough to listen. Yeah, definitely. I want to talk more about that scene. Yeah, that's but a good one. Let's... I know. <laughs> <laughs> but just on the topic of Stephen, I guess moving to Shirley yeah. as well, I feel like she's also someone who tries to control yes. to cope, um, but in a very different way from Stephen. Like she's a lot more nurturing, but her sort of way of controlling is, I don't know, it's more making sure her house is in order. She's a perfectionist. Yeah, she's a total perfectionist, like the funeral home scene, everything being exactly right mm-hmm. and having the right flowers and all of that sort of stuff. Um, not quite as pathological, but still, mm-hmm. like, I feel like she's probably the most together of all of them, maybe, but not really. <laughs> it feels like well, that, but she's is just it? Yeah, exactly. She presents that face. Yeah. Right. But she's just not haunted by the dead. She's haunted by yeah. the living, like her own guilt of her, like, she. so she has a different haunting mm. and, like, she basically is... She wants to be nothing like her parents, so of course is exactly mm-hmm. like her parents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that idea of like keeping secrets and brewing anger and like keeping everything under wrap. Like it's cool. I'm perfect. And so that means I'm completely inflexible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's not ideal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I forgot about her haunting being the um, person she has a brief affair with as well. And I wonder if her biggest fear is not being perfect, is having made a big mistake in her marriage mm-hmm. and being found out yeah. is actually fallible and perhaps not such a good person yeah. that she thinks she is. Yeah. Do you know what could have helped them all? Just maybe communication. <laughs> Just straight up talking. Yeah. That's it. Just talking. A little bit of talking and a little Just bit, throw a that little bit of listening. That's all, we, that's all we needed. Same with Hugh. Like he, I, I find that oh, yeah. storyline quite hard that he, after it occurs, he's obviously not convicted of having anything to do with his wife's death as far as we see. And he sort of packs the kids off to live with their aunt and he's, you know, AWOL. Disappears, yeah. Why? <laughs> like, yeah. why don't you want to support well, your kids through what they've just experienced? Well, because because he can. Because he's yeah. a man in the 90s who can just, yeah. sorry, who could just go away. Who could take the kids to the aunties and say, I can't do this right now. And walk I'm away. noping out of this, yeah. And if he had been a less typical dad and more <laughs> yeah even asked for help himself i guess mm-hmm. he could have actually given them some support that would have helped them through their trauma yeah totally. but they, they were yeah. instead abandoned and added more trauma mm-hmm. basically he was like i'm gonna check out emotionally and i'm gonna totally focus my attention to the memory of my wife mm-hmm. who we actually physically see so we know he's being haunted by the memory of his wife and he'd rather be prioritizing the memory yes. of someone dead mm-hmm. than his own children because yeah. it's which Cause really it's checks safer, out. easier. I don't know. Yeah, like it feels it's less complex. Yeah, feels it's easier. less difficult. Or it's like you're living, staying in the pain instead of mm. dealing, dealing with, with it. Because yeah. again, like everyone is like, we're just gonna just deny everything. Like he's denying that his children are hurting. Yeah. Like he's denying that he needs to be responsible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So everyone's in denial, and everyone won't talk to anybody, and then they only talk to someone. When someone dies. Yeah. Yeah. That's which the only time they come together. Which yeah. again is like so indicative to many a family, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That good family show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
let's go to grief um because <laughs> there's so much to say the fact that when they come together at Nell's episode at the funeral home the dynamics between them and the arguments is just so mm-hmm. it's just so bang on because when a family member dies you think this is a time to come together and support each other but it's often the opposite mm-hmm. of what happens and when my brother passed away the first month was Difficult, not just because we were all grieving, but there was a lot of tension and everyone was in their own sort of grief experiences and waves, um, mm-hmm. which we continue to be in. And it meant that tensions were high. So a comment could be made and that would just be completely interpreted the wrong way. And then we'd end up fighting. Mm-hmm. It didn't happen a lot, but there was a few moments where it was like, my sister had to be the one. She's the youngest, but she's the most rational. <laughs> and she's got ADHD, so I don't know if that's related. But um, she was just like, guys, we're supposed to be supporting each other. Can you stop? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. it nothing matters now. Our brother's mm-hmm. dead. So yeah. stop fighting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really hard to remind yourself of that fact mm-hmm. because you're stuck in your head. You're going through your own feelings and... You don't have as much control over your filter and, you know, you're more vulnerable. So I felt like those ups and downs during that episode were very relatable. Yes. Yeah. And I think like how people deal with grief and how we have to, in our society, we did an episode Mm -hmm. on grief with this belief that in 12 months, everyone's fine. And this is 26 (laughs) years later. Nobody is fine. None of them are fine because grief inevitably changes you for the rest of your life. And this idea that if you do not allow yourselves to grieve in the way of like community and then understanding that your life will be changed and not expecting it to just go back to the way it was because there is no back to the way it was and that like your life moving forward you will carry Mm. that with you uh doesn't mean you have to always be sad but instead they just locked everything up yeah all of them Mm -hmm. are like luck 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 we're not going to talk about mom like no one talked about her like zero talking about mom it felt like Any person that really brought her up was really Hugh in the fact that he was talking to her constantly. Mm-hmm. And then Stephen yes. saying, you know, mom died because she was crazy. And then, yeah, we're all good. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's also very indicative, like for me, like there's before and after. So, yeah. like, you know, th- that event yeah. of this person dying is like colors everything. Mm-hmm. And when you think of how long they actually spent in Hill House, it wasn't a significant chunk of time, but it's a very before and after. because of what actually occurred there and has colored the rest of their lives. And I feel like being in Hill House, all of the things that led up, because if we go on the idea that maybe mom was dealing with mental illness that led to death by suicide, it was evolving and getting worse through that whole time there in that house. So that whole period of time could feel like a million years when you're dealing with someone who's progressively getting sicker yeah and then there's that end point and then you want to erase all of that but you you can't because it it does feel like a lifetime those moments of that that whatever you call that yeah yeah the trauma there you go that trauma (laughs) yeah and i think that idea of like the red room i've been Mm. thinking about this a lot of times is that it is actually coping mechanisms Mm -hmm. and how people Mm. are trying to ignore through a coping mechanism what is a reality Mm. so yes they say like the house is digesting it's the stomach of the Mm. house and it puts on faces that could would be still and quiet while digested Mm. but if you look at it it's like theo's dance studio and dance is what she loved to do Mm -hmm. it was a reading room for mom Mm. it was a game room for steven a family room for shirley because she desperately just wanted family toy room was for Nell, Mm. and then a Mm -hmm. tree house for luke they were their places of sanctuary Mm. But it wasn't real sanctuary. It was them coping with 
someone important in their life basically like going through something major like I know as I was I would cope by reading Mm -hmm. that was my escape Mm -hmm. like I escaped the world and I just read all the time and I can so I identify with those things as coping mechanisms for like the world is too hard right now I'm gonna just go and hide and this is what they're doing do you think they were interpreting that as not a good thing to have that escape or have that coping strategy I think did it go too far though I think it was probably good at first it helped at the beginning because they were using that to not deal right but when you're when you're young that's what they did to feel better but eventually Mm. you have to actually work on the trauma that's making you need to go hide or or go to that safe you actually have to to know why like what how can I be safe not in this space but in all the spaces yeah right we talk a lot about that right just in general coping mechanisms how we the things we've learned to get through childhood, mm-hmm. we have to undo as adults. That's all That's all I'm doing right now in therapy is like, what are my safety behaviors because of anxiety? Mm. And that some of that's learned maybe in a way, some of it is just the nature of anxiety, but understanding the things I'm learning, like everybody does this, whatever I do. Well, no, that's actually a safety behavior to get me through the anxiety I'm feeling as opposed to being like, oh, I'm feeling this anxiety it'll eventually pass. I don't have to now research for eight hours on the toe that hurts or whatever that might mean, mm-hmm. right? Like that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a basic example. But so yeah, like I think at first it feels like it's helping, but it, it doesn't help forever. No. Yeah. It starts to eat you mm-hmm. from the inside because you're not dealing with. So literally like the idea of it being a stomach that your coping mechanisms that are hiding your pain is the thing that ends eating up you. eating you. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh. <laughs> But it makes sense. Totally like, makes like, sense. And I don't think, I looked up lots of things like, what do other people think about the red? No one talked about that. And I was like, oh, but this is just, it's keeping you complacent in the face of horror, yeah. right? It's like your coping mechanism when you, when you can't deal with how bad the world is being. And then Hugh, they say, never found the red room because the whole house was his red yeah. room. Because he was just trying to fix it. Always like the mold, the mold. I got to mm. fix it. I got to fix it. I got to fix it. Imagine if he allowed to, if he let go and admitted that he can't fix everything. Mm. What if he had felt secure enough mm. with his family mm. to be able to talk yes. about how he is feeling and how this is maybe beyond them and that maybe it's better for them to move, move on and that better them to like get help or better to like deal with what was happening, like seeing his wife unravel and instead focusing on this rot yeah. Yeah. without seeing that the rot is happening in his family. Yeah. Yeah. And the, where does the rot come from? Like yeah. what is the, the actual issue mm-hmm. at hand that, that needs to be unveiled? Mm-hmm. Right. And the fact that they thought that the red room was the heart of the house until Nell actually says, no, it's the stomach. So that's, I guess that's really indicative of when we think the coping strategy is, is actually helpful and wholesome and there's no mm-hmm. malice or there's no, nothing bad that can come from it, but then realizing that it's actually avoiding yes. what we need yeah. to actually deal with. And and I think that's yeah. those realizations, I don't know, because it's for me just recently where I'm like, oh, yeah, it would feel a lot better not to continue thinking about the thing that, you know, like, yeah, oh, that makes sense. But when you're in it, you just it consumes you, which again, yeah. again, stomach, it's consuming yeah. you. <laughs> ah! yeah. I feel for Olivia. I feel for oh. her because I think she was literally emotionally exhausted. Mm. She had cabin fever. She had migraines, migraines, anxiety. She's dealing with these children in a house that's falling apart. She is essentially the sole caregiver of these children and she's overprotective. And she's trying to design this home as well. She's trying to do work for them to live in. Yeah. So she's like leading all of this and doing all these things and dealing with like a lot of mental health and physical physical illnesses. And 
they're like, oh, she's schizophrenic. I'm like, how about she was like doing all the yeah, things? Yeah, she's being and a, how about like a woman in this day and age? Yeah, she's just being a woman. Period. <laughs> yeah, I know. In the patriarchy and her overprotectiveness being pushed over the edge by this ghost. That, yeah, and you know Olivia. But I don't know. It's interesting. Like sometimes people, this happens where you have you take on so much mm-hmm. and then you have a breakdown. Yeah. And why does that mean she's schizophrenic? Could it just mean she had a breakdown because she was yeah. trying yeah. to protect everyone and couldn't? Yeah. Because it happens a lot. And it feels like mm-hmm. the ghost Poppy saw that in her and manipulated yeah. that into, yeah, which, you know, could mm-hmm. be a metaphor for psychosis and um, how that can take over when you're at your, particularly people who do have schizophrenia, when there's a buildup of stress yes. and anxiety can lead to a psychotic episode. Yes. And yes. the behavior that comes from that is not intentional, whether you can interpret it that way and that, you know, it led to her to becoming mm-hmm. homicidal. Yeah. But I think I completely agree, particularly the fact that we see her being so nurturing to the kids in so many episodes and also the fact that she really relates to her kids in such a way. Like when Theo talks about how she can feel things and she says, yeah, my grandmother was sensitive like that and so am I and gives her a strategy to help deal with it. Um, Like she's such a good mom in so many of those moments. And I think given everything that's happened, I don't think you can explain it all the way by, oh, she was just mentally ill. No. Yeah, those circumstances dire. that she was in were it were dire. Yeah. We're dire. Because also they're like, if we don't do this, yeah. like the pressure on we that. lose everything. Mm. And that happens when you have that exceeding pressure. And you see those that with people who sadly I'll you know, because she did die by suicide in this show. Mm-hmm. You see that with people who are get burnout mm-hmm. and they'll like special like in finance jobs and things like that, and they will just walk up to their apartment and walk off the balcony. Yeah. Because they're like, I can't, this is too much now. I can't now. do it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not because that they were had anything beforehand that would indicate that they had some difficulty with mental health. It was that they burned themselves out. Mm-hmm. And so is this actually a case of burnout? And that she, I know she then becomes homicidal, but it's like in a way that idea of like, oh, without me, you'll not be cared for. Yeah. And it's better for us you. to die together, yeah. which you see, you see that happen a lot of times. You see that happen with women and like their children. And it's like, well, if without me, you'll be lost. And so we'll die together versus me leaving you. Alone. And in the show, she thinks that she has to kill her kids in order to save yeah. them from the yeah. atrocities yeah. that are occurring. So, so all, yeah. all in all, she was a really good mom. <laughs> <laughs> she just loved her kids. <laughs> I'm interested though because it's like you know at the end it's like Hugh and her being together like it feels like I'm just trying to sort of interpret how you know Nell comes home she wants Nell to come home like the ghost of Olivia and then Hugh sacrifices himself so that all the other kids can go and he gives himself to the house and obviously this is the house not necessarily Olivia herself who are consuming all these people but it also feels like at the end of the day Nell's there, but it's sort of the relationship between Hugh and Olivia that sort yeah, of saves, yeah, that's sustained. Yeah, I'm not sure about that either. <laughs> but maybe it's that he finally, like, he finally saw, oh, like I screwed up so badly that this is this maybe for the yeah. first time I'm going to step up and help my children. Yeah, that's true. But it's almost like he's doing that, but he's benefiting because he gets to be with his wife again. Like, is he really losing anything? Not that he has yeah. to lose, but you know, I don't know. Like, is he doing the right thing? I guess his his some of his kids are, are able to 
move on and like they show us that they all seem to be doing well and functioning mm-hmm. after everything's done surprisingly but like was it hard for him to choose that i don't know if that would be hard for him to choose great i get to hang out with my wife On the topic of Theo, can we talk a little bit about her portrayal as a psychologist? I, I feel like you need to t- say stuff because you are trained. <laughs> can I yes, talk about Please it? tell us what you think. <laughs> yeah, you have to talk about this. Please tell us <laughs> about this. What is right and what is wrong? I think she was great. And I love also that she's like queer mm-hmm. and that's just like who she is. And it's funny that a couple of her siblings didn't notice, but like everyone else did. And that she's got like a life outside of being a psychologist too. Yes. And it feels balanced because she's still a very good psychologist from what it seems like. And also she's a great psychologist but also has her own issues, which is very accurate. Yes. And I love that her experiences of trauma actually led, I feel, to her – well, it did – choosing that as a field. Totally. Also extremely accurate. Yeah. I think if you interviewed any psychologist, they'd be like, yeah, because I had some – shit happened when I was a kid and that made me look into this yeah I thought the therapy it was pretty good like in terms of what most depictions of therapy are I think it was pretty good particularly with kids because I have worked with kids with trauma backgrounds as well and the use of like play mm-hmm. and you know how sessions usually go seem pretty accurate and then having that sort of chat with the parents afterwards and not sort of divulging yeah. what exactly happened in the sessions but just asking some questions and my only concern was that she didn't clean the toys afterwards which I had to do every session I like I like that you made note of that and that's totally something that if you're doing it you would like that would clock like like, oh that's that's the job I don't but there's germs everywhere especially in our world right now exactly (laughs) yeah exactly and I guess you know the one inaccuracy is that you wouldn't just do a drop in to a family's house but of course you know Mm -hmm. usually psychologists don't have special powers where they can actually feel what's happened to a person I can, you, can you imagine if your therapist could do that, though? Wow. It would make things Ugh. so much easier. Like, easier and harder because they would be, be there. Like very traumatized. Yes, I guess. But then <laughs> Oh, it would be so hard. That would be hard for yeah. the therapist. I didn't think about that. I just thought about myself selfishly how beneficial yeah. it would be for me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good metaphor for how vicarious trauma can occur yes. as, a, as a mental health professional and that you do have to protect yourself because you do end up hearing lots of really traumatic yep. things and have to mm-hmm. hold space for someone else's trauma and you do have to protect yourself from that without ending up being not empathetic you have to, to put your, you have to put your gloves on you have to put your gloves on yeah no but the same as a point kind of pointing yes. at sarah which no one can see on a podcast but editing mm-hmm. documentary filmmaking can you know i've done that too where it's like talking to people i, I was interviewing people who had um survived hurricane sandy in really traumatic situations talk to people who were in the field and you're listening to these stories again and again mm-hmm. and you it normalizes for you but it's not something that is actually well, yeah mm-hmm. I've done yeah. a lot of work with residential school survivors and watching that footage there's moments even Heather's pointed out where I'm like I'm feeling a certain way and then it'll be like well what have you been working on lately I was like oh mm-hmm. of course mm-hmm. I'm feeling a certain mm-hmm. way because I've been dealing with telling somebody's story that is traumatic mm, yeah. and trying not to share yeah. the parts that could traumatize the audience, but it does in turn affect me. Yeah. yeah. Even if you try, it's hard to avoid that and you're not necessarily aware of how it's affecting you. Yeah. And it was sadly quite accurate in a very brief way, but like the fact that when she discovers the client's abuse and she reports some child services, although they, they acted very quickly, I don't think that's accurate. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> 
she says she's just back in the system so is this a win Mm. and that's so true Mm. like the sad part is this little girl who's now not having her foster father abuse her she's likely to experience abuse in some other ways Mm. and not have her trauma dealt with appropriately because she needs to be protected and unfortunately that system's really flawed yes yeah exactly like what is the place that's beneficial like it worked in a program where there's a kid who had was being abused and they took him out of the abusive home and and he went to live with his grandparents who were alcoholics Mm. but it was a better situation for him Mm. than it was at the home where the the stepfather was Mm. beating him Mm. and so they're like it's not ideal but it's better yeah and so that's still so difficult sadly the reality yes very much so. And I love the quote that she says that it's very much about how we deal with traumas, particularly as young kids. She buried it so deep that she made up a monster to compartmentalize it. She needed help and no one was listening. I guess the context between that is she's like the smiley man came yeah. and what she was actually focusing yeah. on once Theo was able to get in the position that she would have been in is that, you know, it looked like a smiley face in the roof mm. while she was mm-hmm. being abused. So that's how she's created this monster to cope with the abuse. Just that line was just so perfect of yes. how especially with horror as well as we make up monsters to deal with difficult situations yeah because horror heals I, we also was saying that like having sensitive skills and being ultra, ultra empathetic. And I sort of thought, is that sort of a code for neurodivergence? Mm, yeah. But also complex PTSD yes. as well. Yes. Both. I, I lean to complex PTSD. Yeah. I, I think that's, yeah. You have to be very aware of hypervigilance feelings around you to make sure you're safe. Hypervigilance. Yeah, totally. And sometimes that can look similar in neurodivergence as well. And often there's a crossover <laughs> Yes, exactly. And or. And or. And or. Yeah, definitely. So just to finish up all the neuroses of the family, let's talk a little bit about the substance use from Luke because that's a huge plot line as well and his stint in rehab. What did you guys think about how that was portrayed? I mean, I feel like he was... Oh my god. Like oh, A, he's from a family of like what's great is he did talk about the hereditariness because yeah. Theo also mm, abuses alcohol. Yes. Um, not drugs. A bit more but functionally, it seems. A bit more yeah. Fun- yeah, yeah. I guess that's functional, but yeah. <laughs> but man, this poor kid, his family's skeptical of everything he says. They don't believe anything. Right. I said this earlier. He was tormented by ghosts. He was followed by one, mm-hmm. and then he was almost mm-hmm. murdered. Mm-hmm. By his mother. <laughs> By his mother, lost everybody, and he was completely isolated in a place where something like substance abuse could be a good place to go to try to help him deal with this idea that he's has nothing and is alone and completely unbelieved. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, I'm like, yeah, I that tracks. Like, how do I escape? It makes this? sense that he got to that. Yeah, piece. and even things like they didn't believe that Abigail was real; they thought it was in his imagination. She was a real yes. person. Like, just. Basic yeah. things, they just completely everything he said invalidated was- everything. Yeah. yeah, It sounds like there was a theme of wanting to be brave and mm. constantly telling him he wasn't a brave person. Mm. And he was being yeah, so he brave. He was probably the bravest. Yeah. Because he actually was trying to like deal with it all the time. Yeah, with no support or help. Yeah, it's kind of like in those families where we know this from things people we know that you have a person who's like hey there was abuse in our family and then everyone's like no you don't know what you're talking about you're a black sheep now we don't want to talk to you don't come to any parties don't be part of this like hey we're allowed to be here as a group a family and chat as a family but as as long as we don't talk about anything bad and he's like hey bad shit happened everyone's like shut up yeah go we don't want to we don't want anything to do with you because you're actually telling the truth go away and he's like i guess i will be alone here and I will try to do some drugs. Find, yeah, try feel to feel better. 
That's- yeah. And he's still being haunted so much by what has happened, like with the mola hat yeah, guy, yeah. tall man. Like he- floating man is he's scary. so scary. Oh yeah, absolutely terrifying. <laughs> Them saying it doesn't exist, like it doesn't make everything go away. No. It makes it makes it yeah. more extreme. Makes it worse. Yeah, he's a few, literally a few steps away from him. His entire, his entire life. Yeah. Can you even just like pause and think about? I was just like, I have to walk down a dark hallway when I leave this room, <laughs> and I'm not looking forward to that because I like you. Just the feeling of somebody a few steps behind you for your whole life. Well, what a great metaphor for yes. complex PTSD. Hundred percent. That you always feel Being like you're watched. hunted and watched, and you're hyper vigilant. Yeah. Well, you have to keep looking around. What's next? Yeah, you'd keep yourself safe. Yeah. And like, and him, the way he kept himself safe was to do drugs. Yeah. And the fact that he struggled so much to get sober mm-hmm. because it makes the trauma more real yeah. and it's harder to escape yeah. something when your things are clearer, things are sharper because you're not dulling that yeah. pain anymore. Yeah. Also, you don't, the thing that we were, we did something talking about addiction and one of the big things is having support mechanism mm-hmm. in place. Mm-hmm. No support. He had no support mechanism. No, he had no one to go to. Yeah. And when he went to Nell, she helped facilitate his drug yeah. use. Because also she was not in a place to be able to. No. She was in her most vulnerable no. state yeah. as well. Exactly. Mm. So they became codependent mm-hmm. on each other yeah. because they, that's how And that's they all they had. knew too, right? Exactly. As twins, I think. And yeah. Them being the littles. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Definitely. I didn't love how in the rehab facility, and I don't know how accurate this is in rehab, maybe it is, which I have a problem with, um, when he leaves to go and seek out his friend who had escaped rehab, his support worker, whoever it was, said, if you leave, you give up your bed. You did it to yourselves, which I thought was just a really horrible <laughs> message. I think that can, that can be accurate for these facilities that – are voluntary. Yeah. There is only so many and there are only so many beds. Like, I think that that's probably mm. shitty. I don't think it should be like that. And we need facilities for people who don't have the means to pay for this a private rehab space. Like, I was listening to your episode about Honest yeah. Star is Born and, yeah. and how beautiful the rehab facility is. Like, if you have the money, <laughs> you have the means, you have a, you'll have a bed. Yeah. <laughs> But you have to pay for it yeah. anyway. That's the system is just well. If you broken. if you have the money and the means and you go to jail, your experience is pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Comparatively, <laughs> no, to, you know what I mean. Like anything, everything is better when you exactly. Have money, yeah, yeah. yeah, which is not that wasn't the case. Not for me. No. Yeah. We have to wrap up soon. Let's talk about some of the, I guess, the helpful messages and the harmful messages, and I guess we'll touch on some of the stereotypes as yeah. we talk about it. I guess, firstly, how did you find this show helpful for you personally? I have a quick mm. feeling. I thought for a film, for a series that was like a horror show that was scary and spooky, like very scary, to have it feel like everybody was lived happily ever after, like actually made me feel good. Like oh, I felt like, nice. oh, what a happy yeah. ending. So like in a in a small little bite-sized thing, I was happy with how it, it made me feel good in the how end. It how it ended. Yeah. 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 Like that... The stuff that Nell like really closes out with like, mm-hmm. but the idea that there's no without, I'm not gone, I'm scattered into so many pieces mm-hmm. sprinkled on your life mm-hmm. like new snow. I love that like we talked about confetti, but it was mm-hmm. brought into this too. It's like that idea that, yeah, that you are always, I, mm-hmm. you were loved, I was loved and you were loved mm-hmm. and the rest yeah. is confetti. Like yeah. as in like the rest is fine. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. Like love is all that matters. And I think- What's hopeful, why it's hopeful is finally all of them have finally Mm -hmm. talked 
and they finally have to let go of those coping mechanisms that mm-hmm. aren't working anymore, like the isolation and the a lot of it's isolation and that mm-hmm. those roadblocks they put in place. And so finally, they're like, oh, we can move forward without that. But it took this loss mm-hmm. to allow, yeah. allow them to do it. I love that. Um, yeah. I remember watching mm-hmm. it the first time and thinking it was a bit silly, but then that was before things happened in my mm-hmm. life that made it more yeah. relatable. Yeah. Um, but just that speech to her siblings and how they all apologize. And then she's like, it wouldn't have mattered. It was just kind of what I needed at that moment too, because a lot of what, um, my family's been experiencing is what if, you know, what if, Mm. you know, what if this had happened or that had happened? Also just that understanding that she's not gone. It's just a different sort of state of being and she'll always be there in their lives. And I think that's really something that I'm holding on to at the moment in that just because someone's died doesn't mean they are not in your life anymore. Um, That was just incredible. I guess also that that theme of like family is a home you can never leave, like (laughs) in in a more foreboding way, like the house they could never leave, but it's also like you'll always belong Mm. here almost. Mm Yeah. And I, yeah, that idea of the fixer and not, you can't Mm -hmm. fix everything. It just Mm -hmm. is. This is just Mm -hmm. is. Mm. And to be able to understand Mm. that, and by being able to accept that this just is allows you yes. to let so much yes. more in. Yes. I think that's a huge message in the entire show. Like it's not about ignoring whether it's mental illness or hauntings. It's not about blaming it. It's not about like accusing people of being this way or that way or or seeing it as something that's unnatural. It's just accepting yeah. it yeah. for what it yeah. is. And making yeah. space for it. And I love that idea, like thinking back again to that, if we take the idea of mm-hmm. every love story as a ghost story and make it to every moment of our lives, mm-hmm. it becomes a ghost and the people that are in it populate your world with yeah. many ghosts of them that you carry mm-hmm. with you. Mm-hmm. That's so good because it's like someone might have touched your life in one way and mm-hmm. then someone else in a completely mm-hmm. different way. So those ghosts yes. can be very different yeah. to each pe- person as well, even though they're the same person. Yeah, yes, and they're not always bad. Sometimes they're yeah, exactly. a wish. Mike Flanagan. I love that. <laughs> and before we wrap up, any harmful messages? Well, always the woman that has to be the person. The crazy like, one. Yeah. Like, come on. <laughs> <sighs> that's I, frustrating. Yeah, I will say like that ending, that happy ending that no one have after suicide where everyone gets to talk out their feelings and be like, oh my God, I'm yeah. so sorry. I'm so sorry. And then get resolution from the person who died. I'm like, well, that's nice, yeah. but that's not it, real. It's not real. Yeah. But but as we spoke, like is it hard it, for? Yeah. To communicate, watching something like this, maybe it'll make you want to communicate. Yeah. I don't know. Mm, maybe. There's, I, I mean, know. it's not harmful, but it's to have those conversations yeah. before. Is it harmful? Is it just unrealistic? Maybe that's what it yeah. is. Yeah. I guess it could potentially glamorize and yeah. make enticing the idea of suicide to anyone who feels that way, particularly young minds, but Maybe, yeah. But they're not going to – are you thinking of coming back as a ghost to say the things that you didn't get to say? I don't know. Yeah. No. (laughs) No. But also I think it could be quite comforting for anyone who has lost someone to be able to have that conversation in their heads or, you know, write a letter or, you know, be able to share those feelings to the ghost. Yeah. So maybe you can have those resolutions, but you do it and it does – yeah. So anyway, yeah. Yeah. I think that we had in here, which I put too, that like – that Nell was a Bentley lady and that I'd thought about it for a long time as being the inevitability of mental illness and the cyclical nature of it, that it comes, Mm -hmm. that you carry it with you. But then when I shifted my thinking, so then I'm like, well, that's harmful. 
that this idea yeah. that you can never mm. escape it. You can't escape yeah. it. Yeah. But then if I when I once I shifted my thinking when I started thinking about it and was like, oh, it's if it is more about her feelings of death and her own death and suicidal ideation, that changes what it is. Mm-hmm. So it mm. isn't harmful. It is the reality of what she's dealing with with her depression. Yeah. Mm. It turns it into something that I'm like, it's not inevitable. It's more that that's her looking back almost at the moments where she felt closest to death versus it being mm, yeah. like, yeah. you were you were going to end up this way. And I feel like her monologue at the end is kind of like, now I understand yes. the comfort in knowing that time isn't linear mm. and like everything is confetti and the love is sort of what remains. I feel like that's her sort of coming to terms with the fact that being afraid of death your whole life isn't necessarily the way to be, I guess. Yeah. yeah. The other harmful thing is Stephen deciding that he's going to just not have kids because he doesn't want them to have a mental illness. Like, Yeah, that's very I'm fine. <laughs> I have a mental illness and I am fine and I'm living a great life. But I know that's, well, maybe that's, that's the thing people do all the, a lot. It's that sense that mental illness is a death sentence. Exactly. Same but with- I know that I've thought about it myself. I mean, there's many reasons. I don't have mm-hmm. children. I think part of it was definitely like I raised my family. So I'm like, I, I did it, guys. I raised people in my, like, that's what it felt like. I was taking- You already have your babies. <laughs> yes. They're all grown and I just, I'm so proud of them. Um <laughs> <laughs> But I think there is something in, I understood where he was coming from. And I feel like there are people, Mm. and it's not because I think anything is wrong with me or anyone who's mental illness, but there is something of like, is this the path Mm. that I want someone else to have to take? Yeah. And and if I want to give my love, mm -hmm. why does it have to be someone that I have biologically why can't I take care of someone who needs love who may not Mm. be someone that is born from me? I don't think that that's what he's looking at, though. Like, mm. he No, he doesn't want to have children. Like, he, she wants to have children from him with his sperm. And he's like, yeah. nope. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. right? Mm. So he he doesn't want to procreate because he's scared of everything that his family's facing because yeah. that's the yeah. ghost of his mom. Mm-hmm. And it's hard because it's complex. And it's like, I love all the people in my life. Do I want someone who struggles to leave the house? No. And, and, and I don't, it's like, it's complex. It's totally because complex. I yeah. would love the person regardless, but Remind then it's like, me, yeah, she's pregnant, right? Or the, that's the dream. I'm trying to remember the end. So I believe in the end, she's pregnant. So we're we're to believe that maybe he got a reverse vasectomy, which you can um, do. So yeah. he changes so his mind. Healed, maybe realized that if we have the right tools in life, that it, it can hmm. be okay. No yeah, and it will be okay. Does. But also, like, yeah, I can understand but, uh, yeah. why someone would that would be feel, something you would question. That yeah. you question or think about, and you're like, hmm. you know, it's. It happens a lot, a lot, a lot. I think that happens a lot in disability. Like, you know, all all the things. People talk about it a lot. And I just, it's hard. But it happens within with people who, and especially over things of poverty or things like where it becomes like, can we bring children into this world? And climate change, like, it's not just mental illness. The way the world is. Like, do I want to bring my child into this environment? And this environment could be like lots of different things. Will I be able to... It could be a haunted house. It could be a could haunted house. Could I take house, care of a child in the, even <laughs> yes. though I feel like in a good place with my mental health, but would I be in a good place with my mental health with a child? Who knows? Like there's all these questions yeah. that I think we ask exactly. ourselves mm-hmm. and I think it's okay. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't condemn him. It's okay to it make those okay. decisions. I think you're right. It's okay yeah. to make those decisions. It's what's right for, for, you. What's right for you. Um. Yeah. yeah. Parenting is fucking hard. <laughs> it's <laughs> the hardest thing in the world if you ask me um so it's completely reasonable to have those fears and worries yeah and i think that's just was a way of like him trying Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Again, it was him closing everything off and control. Yeah. yeah. Nothing will be control. bad. No one will be hurt if yeah. I because I'm controlling it. So it was more about because I'm other people yeah. too. Like I don't want anyone yeah. to be hurt. Yeah. So maybe it wasn't so harmful. Maybe you've changed. Yeah. But what I think is good about it is there are a few tropes and a few potentially harmful things, but they all sign it kind of get resolved mostly yeah. at the end. Like they will get subverted mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. some way in that, you know, Stephen makes that decision. Dad ends up saving the day at the end. The deadbeat quote unquote drug addict ends up being sober. All of those things. In a nice, nice, tidy little bow, which is probably not accurate, but good enough. <laughs> Wrap it up in a present. Yeah. Or are they all dead yeah. and this is just a dream? I mean, that's fine too. <laughs> I'll, take I'll, take happy. Happy. I'll take happy. I'll take happy. I'll take the happy. <laughs> uh, we could probably talk for another hour, let's be honest, but I will let you both go. Before we finish up, could you please let us know anything that's coming up in the pipeline that you'd like to plug and also give us your details so people can follow you and your podcast? I have a couple features that are getting theater release. I don't know if it's ever going to make it to Australia or not, but if you're around and you hear the film Hey Victor or the Lebanese Burger Mafia, please go watch them. Fantastic. I them. I'll find out if it's coming to Australia. <laughs> you can find us at Brains AAA podcast on all social. A-I-N-S podcast. And my, this is Sarah. Personally, you can find me for my editing work, Sarah Taylor Editor, on Instagram. That's the best place. And I'm Heather A. Taylor everywhere that you can be on social media. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about Haunting of Hill House. I hope everyone gets a lot out of our chat because I, f- I feel like we didn't even touch on so many other things, but I, I, I felt like it was the rich discussion we were hoping to have. So Thank you so much. And please go and listen to Brains, especially the three-part episode for Mental Health Awareness Month. Just a brilliant mini-series. And yeah, I'm also, I haven't listened to your latest episode of Midsummer yet, but I, because I've been prepping for this, but I'm so excited to listen to it because Midsummer's an it's amazing It's really film. good. It's about cults and we also have one oh, coming up about ghosts. Yes. So if you're feeling in the halloween mood, please listen to those. And then, of course, Steph was on the three-part series. Her episode is doing the best. Oh. So it is like people love it. Top numbers, top numbers. It was people (laughs) want to listen and hear because a lot of people have questions about disclosure. Mm. And so I think it's such a fabulous episode. And so we're so grateful again that you joined us and you are the best person to talk about it. So we really appreciate it. Thank you. It was such an honor to be on. And yeah, a great chat. This podcast is not designed to be therapeutic, prescriptive, or constitute a formal diagnosis for any listener. For a longer version of this disclaimer, please check the episode notes on your podcast app.